0: You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Later, we'll be hearing about the health of Europe. How have we done over the last 30 years?
1: Women live on average to 80 in Europe, men to 72.5. But in some countries, especially in the eastern part of the region and Central Asia, the difference can be up
0: to 12 years. That is huge. But before that, are all calories equal? Thermodynamics would say that energy is energy, be it derived from carbohydrate, fat, or protein. But when appetite is taken into consideration, things get more complicated, at least according to Robert Lustig, professor of pediatric endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. He's currently in the UK, and Balaji Ravachandran met him for breakfast.
2: Um, Dr. Lustig, thank you very much for speaking to us at the BMJ. Let me begin by asking you, what are you eating for breakfast?
3: Uh, (laughs) Unfortunately, uh, probably everything I should. No, actually, it's not so bad. Uh, So I've got some cheese. I've got a little bit of fruit. I've got some smoked salmon, which is my favorite of all. uh, And I've got just one roll and, and a little piece of pineapple. And the role is the bad thing, you think? The role is the bad thing. Unfortunately, how else are you going to be able to put everything together and there was nothing else up what? there that would make any difference? You do what you have to. Okay. Why is the I role? Knew, the ba- I knew you were gonna ask me that. <laughs> Why is the role the bad thing? Alright. The role is refined carbohydrate. <laughs> refined carbohydrate is glucose. Glucose gives you an insulin response. The higher the <coughs> insulin response, the greater the energy deposition into food. Now. every every, there's refined carbohydrate everywhere the goal is to limit it i'm limiting it i'm only having one small roll instead of five okay (laughs) so i'm doing the best i can
2: so by refined carbohydrates you do you specifically mean sugar as the main problem or
3: no no so refined carbohydrate can be virtually any grain it can be wheat it can be rice it can be pasta, potatoes, all of those are glucose. And if they're white, that means there's no fiber. Yeah. That fiber was actually necessary to mitigate and to attenuate the insulin response. Mm-hmm. When we lose those in the form of processing, then when we consume that white refined carbohydrate like this roll, that's going to generate an enormous insulin response It's gonna make your blood sugar go higher, therefore your insulin go higher, and that means more energy deposition. Mm-hmm. Now, that's glucose. Sugar is also a refined carbohydrate, except sugar is not really a carbohydrate. I mean, technically, of course, it's a carbohydrate, and it's made up of two molecules. One is glucose, and the other one is fructose. Fructose is the sweet stuff. And fructose, unfortunately, is metabolized completely, totally differently than any other food stuff. Fructose is actually metabolized more like alcohol and actually is metabolized to liver fat. And that's the rub. And that's why sugar is so particularly egregious.
2: So for the last 40 years when we've been told, for example, the last time I spoke to my doctor, he told me that obesity is necessarily a function of overeating. So would that be wrong in your opinion?
3: This is how we got off track. What he is saying is the first law of thermodynamics is sacrosanct. And I believe that the first law of thermodynamics is sacrosanct also. So let's say what the law is. The law says energy can neither be created nor destroyed, just shifted around. And I agree with that. There are two interpretations of the law, however. The first, the one you're talking about, the one we all learned, the one I learned originally, is if you eat it, you better burn it or you're gonna store it. Mm If that's the case, then the behaviors of increased eating or gluttony and decreased expenditure or sloth come first. Mm -hmm. And the energy balance, the energy deposition in this case, is a secondary effect of two primary behaviors. A calorie is a calorie because it doesn't matter if those calories come from carrots or cheesecake. But there's another interpretation to that first law. If you're going to store it, that is a biochemical force that drives energy deposition, likely out of your control. So what is that biochemical process? And I can sum it up in one word, insulin. So let's do a little experiment. Let's take you. Nice and thin. You eat 2,000 calories a day, you burn 2,000 calories a day, you feel good, normal day. Mm are you going to lose weight gain weight or stay the same Not stay in the, the store, same. stay the same that's the first law mm-hmm. now let's do a little experiment thought experiment i'm going to put an intravenous line in your arm mm-hmm. and i'm going to follow behind you all day
0: mm-hmm.
3: and every time you reach for food i'm going to pump you full of extra insulin that you didn't want or need i'm going to over insulinize you okay and you're going to start out the day eating 2,000 uh, calories per day just like before, but now because of the excess insulin I'm pumping you full of, 500 of those 2,000 calories get sucked straight to fat. You are now 500 calories heavier. If you stood on the scale you would weigh a seventh of a pound more. You ate 2,000, but you lost 500 of those 2,000 calories to your fat. So how many calories do you now have left to burn?
2: just 1500
3: right but your body wants to burn 2000 because that's where it feels good so what do we call the physiologic state where your body has fewer calories than it wants to burn
2: starvation that's
3: called starvation so in a world of free access to food which we all live in look at the buffet over there what are you going to do
2: go and reach out for the calorific food
3: that's right you're gonna eat back the 500 that I stole except haha I'm still stealing them a hundred of those 500 right off the top straight to fat now you're 600 calories heavier you're only up to 1900 to burn okay so you go to a doctor you go to a nutritionist you say doc every time I get on the scale I weigh more I don't understand why am I fat and the doctor looks at you and goes oh I know why you're fat you're a glutton and a sloth you eat too much you exercise too little and guess what it is true now But it's not because you chose to, it's not because you want to, it's because you have to. It's a biochemical drive set up by the insulin I pumped you full of. I changed your behavior by changing your biochemistry. The biochemistry comes first. It always comes first. So now the question is, all right, if it's all about insulin, if the hormones are driving the behavior, where'd the hormones come from? How come all of us have such high insulin? Where did that come from?
2: And you place the blame squarely at the food industry and the sugar industry.
3: Exactly. The uh, food industry has done two things to make our food insulinogenic and therefore obesogenic. Number one, they added sugar for palatability, especially when we went low fat back in the early 1980s. And we know why we did that and it was a terrible mistake. Mm -hmm. And we're still suffering for it. And number two, they removed fiber. And they removed fiber for their own purposes, for shelf life. The perfect storm for insulin. And that's driving the weight gain, and it's driving the chronic disease.
2: It's interesting you say that, because recently I um, went to a debate in Oxford with mm-hmm. Gary Tubbs, who, mm-hmm. as you know, is a famous low-carbohydrate diet proponent. And I he do. debated... Um, Phil James. Phil James. Mm-hmm. and. What I saw and what I reported for the BMJ was that the first two rows were predominantly occupied by Oxford dons who were all behind a calorie is a calorie. And as soon as Gary, in the final bit, came out and said, it's not the calorie that counts, the quality of the calorie ultimately counts, I heard howls of protests.
3: I will tell you, I was trained in a calorie is a calorie, but I've done original research, hardcore research, in this field, in this pathway and what we have learned is that insulin blocks the leptin signal. Insulin is an endogenous leptin antagonist. To make, you know, 10 years of research coalesce into one sentence, insulin is an endogenous leptin antagonist. The higher your insulin goes, the less well your brain sees its leptin. Mm-hmm. And there are Darwinian evolutionary reasons why this would be true. Point is when your insulin goes up, your brain thinks it's starving and you eat more. And there is scads of studies, just voluminous studies that correlate them, but we actually have causation as well. Insulin drives food intake because insulin blocks leptin. So if that's the case, then what you should be doing is getting your insulin down any way you can.
2: But you're not yourself a proponent of low-carb diet as as opposed to low-fat diet, because that's supposed to be one of the big controversies, at least when it comes to nutrition.
3: The fact is, the Japanese diet is a pretty low insulin diet, yet it's filled with carbohydrate. The Ornish diet is a marvelous way of getting your insulin down. It's the no fun diet, but it's a marvelous way of getting your insulin down.
2: Ornish is low
3: fat diet, isn't it? Highly low fat, but an enormous amount of fiber. And it's the fiber that keeps the insulin down. So pretty much all of your energy comes from carbohydrate, pretty much from glucose. So it ought to spike your insulin but it doesn't because the fiber is the antidote to carbohydrate the fiber mitigates the carbohydrate and there is no diet on the world in the world that has more fiber than the Ornish diet and it works so as far as I'm concerned any diet that gets your insulin down will work if you can stay on them Christopher Gardner in his A to Z study at Stanford showed that no matter what diet you were on by the end of two months you were just on a standard Western diet because that's just what happens. So I don't care about diets. Diets are irrelevant. The question is what about the food drove the insulin? And there it's again sugar, low fiber. So you know what a low-sugar high-fiber diet is called? It's called real food. But now we don't eat real food, we eat processed food. And it's the added its sugar in the processing, it's the removal of the fiber in the processing that drives this epidemic, not just of obesity, but of metabolic syndrome. All those diseases attendant with obesity, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, lipid problems, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, etc.
2: So is this one of the reasons why you think the problem of obesity and our addiction to sugar and refined carbohydrates must be addressed at the level of public policy.
3: I think we need a new food paradigm completely and I think we all need to sit down at the table without the food industry and the problem is we would need government to basically support that. Now the problem is government's in the hands of the food industry. They're in bed with the food industry and the reason is export of food. In America at least, I don't know the data for uh, the UK, but in America 6% of our exports are food. 56 billion dollars to the government. So what do you think the government would say if all of a sudden we said, you know what, maybe that's 6% exports, maybe it's not so healthy, maybe it's a public health risk. So we have a problem and I will tell you, government is not the answer here, at least not the way government is currently constituted. However, there is one part of government that might be and it's the courts. This is how tobacco ultimately was successfully litigated. This is how we made inroads in terms of tobacco, was through the courts. And the courts can't be lobbied by the uh, food industry. So I am learning the tobacco playbook. I am learning how tobacco ultimately got brought to heal. And the question is, can we do the same for metabolic syndrome? So So I am in law school. For one year. It's a master's program. I am not going to sue. I'm just going to help lawyers.
2: What, ki- what kind of legal measures do you envisage? Do you want it to be banned?
3: No, absolutely not. No reason for it to be banned. Mm-hmm. Reduction in availability. Reduction in availability. Make it a little harder to get. We've done it with alcohol. We've done it with tobacco. It does not need to be banned. God knows, you know. If you have a birthday cake, that's fine. It's your birthday, no problem, okay? I wouldn't even care if you had a piece of birthday cake once a week. The point is that's what we used to do. Mm -hmm. Dessert used to be a treat. Now it's a diet staple, okay? That muffin you grab on the way to breakfast, that's dessert. That Chinese chicken salad you have for lunch, that's dessert. Okay? That, the third uh, ingredient in that Chinese chicken salad dressing is sugar. If you, if you eat a McDonald's salad when you go to McDonald's, that's dessert. Because every single processed food has been spiked with sugar. Of the 600,000 food items in the American grocery store, 80% of them now have added sugar. And it was put there by the food industry for their own purposes, not because we asked for it, but because they knew when they add it, you buy more.
0: And if you're interested in food and diet, keep an eye out for a cluster of articles in the near future. Now, Europe has the best health of any of the WHO regions, and there have been incredible gains in life expectancy in the last 30 years. But health inequalities are increasing, according to a new report from the WHO. Anne Gullen, freelance journalist for the BMJ, finds out more.
4: I'm here with Dr Claudia Stein, Director of the Division of Information, Evidence, Research and Innovation for the World Health Organization Regional Office for Europe. Um, She's here to talk about the European Health Report 2012, which provides an update on the state of health in Europe's 53 countries and 900 million population. The report includes trends in life expectancy, disease burden and risk factors. Dr. Stein, could you start off please by giving me the sort of main summary of the report and the most significant findings?
1: There's really an overall message and some key messages. And uh, the overall message is very clearly that the health of people in the European region has improved, people get older and older, they live longer, and mortality rates have fallen. Now, when we say European region, I need to immediately qualify that. We mean 53 member states. So we have to really remember that we're going from all the way to the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean in Vladivostok. Um, So the main finding is that life expectancy has increased by five years on average over 30 years. That's a huge achievement. The population is ageing. That is actually a huge achievement, and we should uh, celebrate that. And mortality rates, particularly in some diseases, have fallen. For example, circulatory diseases. Uh, Premature mortality has fallen considerably in, in certain parts of Europe. Um, But this came at a price, and uh, this is where we see issues that need to be tackled. And this price is really inequalities. Right, right. We've seen that life expectancy varies, obviously, between men and women. It varies between countries and even within population groups. Um, for example, when we look at life expectancy in men, we find that the the life expectancy of men in the highest and the lowest country, 30 years ago, that gap was narrower than it is today. So what, what has caused this sort of um, gap in life expectancy? Well, interestingly, we see that in men, but we do not see that in women. Okay. So... Women live on average to 80 in Europe, men to 72.5, but in some countries, especially in the eastern part of the region and Central Asia, the difference can be up to 12 years. That is huge. And that's in the same country? In the same country. Um, You know, there are some countries in Eastern Europe where within the country, men live 12 years less than, than women and that is some um, a, a considerable difference and in those countries we observe that uh, certain risk factor and lifestyle behaviors um, like smoking alcohol misuse um, are very high also we find that um, other social determinants are, are key factors here we find there is more poverty in those countries and we can see in our data That the level of disposable income in households very much drives mortality. The higher the disposable income, Hmm. the lower mortality. Although that only works up to a certain threshold, up to 20,000 US dollars a year. Then it flattens out and then it becomes a lot more fuzzy. But we know that these are strong drivers. And we can see these differences almost now with an east-west gradient across the region in many indicators of mortality.
4: So the east is where mortality is higher, and west is where it is lower.
1: Yes, it is, and and sometimes we have, for example, in. In uh, cardiovascular disease mortality between the highest and the lowest is a sevenfold difference in mortality. Yeah. The lowest being Israel with um, very good cardiovascular health, very clearly. Um, but we see this in, in, in many of these um, indicators and uh, of course that worries us and we have a very disparate region. It's it's a region that has a, a strong tradition of, of, of social conscience, yeah. of um, setting itself targets for health and, and here we obviously are very keen to tackle that and the member states are also very committed. Um, they have not only adopted the policy but they've also said we're setting ourselves six targets for health over the next seven years to Mm. be achieved by 2020 to mark progress with our health policies and the implementation of health 2020.
4: Right so is it it lifestyle factors or is it health system factors that are what's the um, cause of this in the eastern countries?
1: It is a combination um, for Let's take one example, uh, cardiovascular disease mortality. We have observed that in some countries of Western Europe and Central Europe, uh, death rates uh, per 100,000 population have fallen uh, from cardiovascular disease mortality to the extent that actually cancers are now the most common cause of death in some 17 or 28 out of uh, the whole region. And this is of course uh, an interesting finding and here many different factors come in prevention measures. Um, For example, we have seen in Western Europe many smoking bans. We have seen the implementation of the Framework Convention of Tobacco Control. Um, We have seen, for example, also positive moves in the area of alcohol pricing. But there are also social determinants that are important. And they all play together. So it is really only in the eastern part of the region where we've seen an increase in cardiovascular disease mortality, whereas in the west that has fallen. And of course, we encourage our member states to use Health 2020 as an overarching umbrella policy that tackles all of these issues, that really advises and recommends solutions that work in many areas and across all sectors and across the whole government. Hmm. It is not enough just to speak with a minister of health and have a minister on health committed and on board, as our member states do. But this has to go across the government and has to come from the highest source. So health has to be really seen in all policies. Health has to be really um, uh, tackled by all sectors. And of course, this is also where the issue of well-being comes in. Everybody is engaged and everybody should be engaged and um, well-being is not something that the health sector alone can do mm. or should do.
4: Right, right. And um, the report talks about gender norms shaping the way health systems are organized and delivered, often to the detriment of women and girls. Could you talk a bit more about that, please?
1: Yes, um, women and girls uh, don't tend to be able to access health services in the same way as as men and boys. Let us just take one example, vaccination rates. In some countries, vaccination rates for boys and girls vary, where boys tend to be vaccinated to a higher degree. Mm. Um, The same is true for access to health services. In some countries, you find that where girls uh, are sick in the family, they don't tend to get taken to, say, the health facility or the community nurse, while the boys do. Now, there are cultural norms involved, and it's, it's a very patchy. Um, and and heterogeneous picture across the region and in some other regions this is a lot more extreme but it is nevertheless real so we really need to see our data also with a gender lens Hmm. what people then always say is oh but women live longer I mean they Mm -hmm. can't possibly be disadvantaged and you know why are you saying this Um, but this this really does occur across ages and uh, I think it is important that health system strategies are geared up for that And the Health 2020 policy actually incorporates that. It uses a gender lens. It uses also uh, a governance lens. It says that um, the whole of society needs to be approached. The whole of government needs to be involved. And this is important. And this is, I think, where Health 2020 is a departure from the past, where we really are looking at something in such a holistic way uh, that, uh, that governments really find something in there for everyone to
4: use. That's really interesting. Thanks very much, Dr. Stein. Thank you very much.
0: And that's all for this week. Next week we'll have more food for thought, but this time salt. How much is too much? Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.